Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution Show, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. Well, I hope you enjoyed last week's interview with Ravi Zacharias. I can still hardly believe that he came on The God Solution Show. What a privilege it was. Again, he's been a lifelong impact in my life, and he's somebody that I've wanted to have on the show for years, and I'm just thrilled that he was able to be on the show last week. If you missed the interview with Ravi Zacharias, go to godsolutionshow.com. Again, that's godsolutionshow.com, and click the Past Shows tab, and you'll be able to get that interview and all of our past shows. It was a great interview. Well, as I told you that the interview is coming, I told you that we were going to be talking with Ravi Zacharias about his newest book, Why Suffering? Of course, we've all heard atheists charge us with the problem of evil, Probably you have atheist friends that have said, how in the world could you believe that God exists and that he's good and loving and all-powerful because we see so much evil in the world? Very often in evangelism, I'll hear that rebuttal against Christianity. Well, there are good answers to that good question. Ravi's recent book, Why Suffering, deals with those. I would encourage you to get Why Suffering. Well, since we only had a short time with Dr. Zacharias, I thought it would be important to maybe ask some bigger questions about his life and ministry, questions that I've wondered for a long time. And David Hopkins was on the show with us last week and helped do that interview, and he had some similar questions. So that's the reason we took that route with the interview. This week, however, I thought I would like to revisit this issue of the problem of evil because it's one that we should have down as Christians. We should understand how to respond to this. Remember, in 1 Peter 3.15, we're told to always be ready to give a defense of the hope that we have in Christ. And when we're asked why we can have this hope in Christ, we'll typically be asked this question. So it's one that we should know how to answer. So since we didn't get to address it last week, I thought we'd address it this week. I've touched on this topic in the past on the show, but it's usually been reactive when there were different tragedies. So... Whenever a tragedy might happen, a natural disaster or some evil tragedy, I will typically go back and hit this issue, but kind of almost in a reactionary way and not thoroughly. Today, I thought we'd take some time to really unpack the answer a little bit better to equip you to share your faith and to answer this when it comes up in conversations with those you're sharing with. So get ready for a lot. Today, we're going to kind of go deep with this subject. We're going to learn some of the answers to the problem of evil. There are many more. I'll share resources with you today that I would encourage you to check out because they're good answers. So let's talk about it. If God is good, if he's loving, and if he's all-powerful, how in the world can there be pain and suffering and evil in this world? Epicurus was the first to articulate this, the Epicurean paradox, stating, is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? 
Of course, this was stated more than 2,000 years ago, about 300 years before the time of Christ. So this is no new question at all. But it's a question that everyone has to deal with, and especially theists. As Christian theists, we really have to be able to deal with this. Everybody has to answer the problem of evil. Where did evil come from? The atheists have to deal with this. Others have to deal with this. I'll explain some of that in the show today. But as Christians, we should be ready to answer this. Thankfully, as Christians, we have the best answer to this question. And we have hope in the midst of suffering. We have both the theological and the theoretical and the apologetical answer, but we also have a practical and relevant one, Jesus himself. When we look at pain and suffering throughout the Bible, we see this throughout scriptures. We see God using what happened in Job's life to encourage Christians throughout history. My pastor talked about that this past week and how God used that one man's suffering to encourage countless people that have suffered throughout the centuries. We see God encouraging people in their suffering and then bringing good out of their suffering. This is not a topic that the Bible fails to discuss. This is not a topic that the Bible doesn't give us answers about. There are great answers, though, so let's get into some of the philosophical answers and the theological answers to the problem of evil. So, of course, the question is, where does evil come from? If God is all-powerful and all-good, where in the world did evil come from? Did he create it? Because that wouldn't be very good. Why does he not eliminate it? Because that's not very good. Or maybe he's not powerful enough to eliminate it, some might ask. Well, let's ask first where evil came from. Now, again, everybody has to answer this, so I kind of want to start with what others might believe about evil, because I think it'll give us a good context for the Christian answer. So let's talk about atheists, because they're the ones that typically charge the Christian with the problem of evil. Well, I think it's important to kind of flip it back on them, because they have to deal with it also. See, atheists hold evil as evidence of God's non-existence, but they fail to realize that outside of an objective moral standard, there is no real good or evil. In other words, if God does not exist, evil does not exist. According to atheism, the universe is just chemistry and physics, and that literally means that anything goes, that nothing is truly evil. Frank Turek states that the atheist at this point has to steal from God to make his point. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. Just how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? This is the very act of trying to prove that God does not exist. In other words, that the whole of reality was senseless. I found I was forced to assume that one part of reality, namely my idea of justice, was full of sense. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. What C.S. Lewis is trying to say is that for the atheist to charge that there is evil in the world and to make that accusation against God, they're assuming that evil exists. And the second they assume evil exists, they've already rejected their atheism by which there could be no evil. 
we would have nothing but atoms and molecules and chemistry and physics, and you could not say anything was objectively wrong. So here's where I would always turn to the moral argument for God's existence. If we believe anything is wrong, if we believe anything is evil, then by default we're admitting God's existence, whether we like it or not. William Lane Craig articulates the moral argument for God's existence very eloquently. He puts it this way, If God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Objective moral values do exist, Therefore, God exists. I debated this with an atheist on my show a few years ago. You can listen to that at godsolutionshow.com. But I don't think the atheist has a way out. They either have to reject all morals, and in a different debate with an atheist once at the Fort Lewis campus, the atheist I was debating actually went that route and said objective moral values do not exist. Well, if he truly wants to maintain his atheism, he has to go that route. But the instant he says it, He's just lost all relation to reality because he has affirmed that nothing is right or wrong, that anything goes. Rape goes, murder goes, genocide goes, anything goes, according to his atheism. Now, other atheists might not be willing to go that route. The atheist I debated on my show said that objective moral values do exist, but they're just brute facts. They just are. They don't need an explanation. I asked him if he would take that kind of evidence for God's existence. We don't need an explanation. He just is. He said, of course not. I said, well, then how could you ever use that to support the existence of objective moral values? The reality is that no matter which way you go, if you believe objective moral values exist, you believe God exists. And if you believe evil exists, you believe objective moral values exist, and therefore you believe God exists. So the atheist is really in trouble the second they start making an accusation of evil in the universe. Like Frank Turek says, they have to steal from God to make their point. Let's look at some other kind of religious worldviews, maybe Eastern ones. Well, reincarnation asserts that each life is caused by past karmas and that the evil of past lives must be atoned for, so to say, in present ones. Well, what about the suffering in those past lives. Well, they would say that's because of evil before those lives. Well, what about the suffering in those lives? You see, we keep going to past lives and past lives and past lives, leading to an infinite regress of lives. Well, that is logically impossible. We cannot have an infinite regress. And that makes this whole concept of reincarnation logically flawed. But it also shows us that these Eastern religions do not have an explanation for the existence of evil. They would say it's eternal. It's always existed. Well, there again, if it is eternal, why hasn't reincarnation done away with it in all these years? So there's a fundamental problem with evil in those Eastern religions as well. What about some of the other new thought cults like Christian science? They would say that evil is just a figment of our imagination. Well, that's fundamentally flawed. We all know that people really die, that people really get sick, that evil is very real. We can't just ignore it. My dad had a funny story growing up. He accidentally shot a bottle rocket into some evergreen trees across the street and burned them down. The neighbors came over to see what had happened, but it turned out they were Christian scientists, not scientists that were Christians, but the New Thought Christian Scientist cult. And they said, well, it's just a figment of our imagination. And so they didn't get mad at him for burning down their trees. Well, it might be uh, 
a little bit crazy optimistic, but it's not reality. So everybody has to deal with the problem of evil. And the only ones I believe that have legitimately good answers for this are Christians. And again, we don't just have coherent answers, but we actually have purpose in the context of pain. We know that there's a greater purpose in God allowing evil. We also have hope, regardless of what's going on, that God can bring good from it in the long run. So here are some Christian responses. I hope we've kind of dealt with a few typical non-Christian answers for the problem of evil, and they're wanting. They're not sufficient. What about the Christian response? Well, first of all, where did evil come from? As Christians, we do not believe that evil is a quantity that needs explanation. We don't believe that God created evil. It's not like on day seven, God created evil. Of course, he would be evil if he created evil. We believe that God is the standard of right and wrong. He, in his own nature, is what is right. Failure to measure up to his nature is what is wrong. So he did not create evil, but he created people with the capacity to choose not to live up to his standard. And people, unfortunately, did choose to disobey him. Original sin, right in the garden, Adam and Eve, people decided to do their own thing, not God's thing, and that was evil in its essence. It was not living up to, not measuring up to God's standard of perfection, God's standard of good. A good way to think about this is darkness. Darkness isn't a substance. Rather, it is the absence of light. So when there is no light, we have darkness. But when you turn on the light, you have light. Just like darkness is the absence of light, evil is the absence of God's goodness. Norm Geisler is careful to make a distinction here. And you could read in the Baker Encyclopedia of Christian Apologetics a lot more about this. I think it's now the big book of Christian Apologetics. But he has a whole section on this. And the way he states it is that evil is the deprivation of the good that ought to be. It's not just the absence of something because he says a rock has an absence of sight, but the rock was never intended to see. So evil would be the absence of something that was intended. It would be the absence of a good that ought to be. So he says evil is the deprivation of the good that ought to be. It is the absence of the good that ought to be. Again, it's like darkness. It's the absence of the light that ought to be. It's the absence of the goodness that ought to be. It's the absence of God's nature, his his goodness. It, it's failure to live up to who he is and his standard of right and wrong. So God created a universe with the potential for evil, but he did not create evil. He created human beings with free wills. This is the typical free will response to the problem of evil. He created Adam and Eve and human beings with the freedom to freely choose him or to choose other than him. And choosing other than him is evil. And that isn't just the cause of moral evil. It is also the cause of natural evil. See, there are different types of evil. There's moral evil, which is basically sin. It's the pain that is caused by human sin. When we read about murders, when we read about rapes, when we read about theft, when we read about all these horrible things that hurt people, when we see what's going on in the Middle East right now and across the ocean, even when we hear of what's happening in our own country, some of the terrorist attacks that happened last year, 
We cringe at the evil that is caused by sinful and selfish human beings. That's horrible. That's moral evil. And that is obviously caused by human free will. But what about natural evil? What about natural disasters and hurricanes or sicknesses and diseases? What about aging and getting older and falling apart? What about entropy? What about these different things? Well, Romans 1 tells us that even that natural evil is caused by human sin. And it was caused when Adam and Eve sinned right in the beginning. See, at that time, the whole world, the whole universe was put under a process of decay. And now we experience natural evil as a consequence of man's sin. So at the cause, at the source of all evil is human free will. We as humans were created with the freedom to choose God or to choose our own way. And we have selfishly chosen to go our own way. And that is the cause of moral evil. And ultimately, it was the original cause of natural evil as well. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution Show. You can find out more about The God Solution Show at godsolutionshow.com. Today, we're talking about the problem of evil. We've talked about how some other faiths might address that problem because everyone has to address it. And we've realized that they come up empty-handed. We're right now talking about the Christian response to the problem of evil and the free will response that Christian theists throughout the centuries have articulated. Now, I just talked about how because we're free, we're free to choose other than God, and that truly is in its essence evil. So some might say, well, do humans really have free will? Of course, again, the atheist, the metaphysical naturalist, would believe that there is no free will, that nature is nothing more than atoms and molecules and the laws of nature, and that no choice is truly free, that it's all just materialistically determined. Well, that's right if their atheism is right, and they have to believe that because they believe in metaphysical naturalism. They're naturalistic atheists. So their presupposition imports itself into their conclusion, using Habermas's phrase. The reality, though, is that if their atheism is not true, and there's, of course, no way they could ever prove God's non-existence, then they have no reason to believe in materialistic determinism. So I would say from the atheist perspective, of course, they could never say that humans don't have free will. Now, from a Christian perspective, there are, of course, Christians that might lean on that side of the theological spectrum. And I would just say every chapter in the Bible that I've ever seen assumes the free will of human beings. I would be hard-pressed to find a chapter in the Bible that doesn't assume that. Every time God makes a command, we have a choice to either obey or disobey him. Every time God holds people accountable, he does so justly because they chose to disobey his command. We could talk about that for hours, and we could maybe address it on a different show. But the reality is that God, in his word, affirms the free will of people right from the beginning when Adam and Eve chose to disobey him and through the very end where he implores people to put their faith in him. Remember, Jesus himself said that anyone who believes in him will be saved, and he really meant that. We each have the choice to choose or to reject him. So yes, human beings have free will, and our free will really rests at the bottom of evil on this planet.
God is not the source of evil. He is not the cause of evil, but sinful human beings are the source of evil on this planet. And of course, there's more to the problem of evil as well. There is an enemy that's battling against us on this planet that is evil to the core of his being. So why evil? There is a purpose in allowing evil. Some might say, why doesn't God just end it? Why doesn't he just do away with all evil? I could understand how he isn't the cause of evil, but why, if he's all-powerful and all-loving, would he tolerate it? Why not just end it? Why would he allow children to be raped and trafficked around this world? Why would he allow innocent people to be murdered around this planet? There was a lady at a hotel just a few blocks from our house murdered a few nights ago. Why would God allow something like that to happen? Why would he tolerate it if he's good and powerful and all-loving and all-powerful? How could he possibly do it? Well, here's the answer. He doesn't cause evil, but he does allow it. He could stop it, and he allows it for a greater purpose, and this is phenomenal. There are a few different elements of this purpose, and I'm just going to hit a few. Number one, God allows evil to highlight the reality that decisions have consequences. If I'm not mistaken, it was William Lane Craig that first stated this, or that's the first time I read it, at least. He said, for example, think about natural disasters. They highlight the importance of being responsible in how we make decisions. If I choose to build my home on a fault line, I recognize that I might have evil, natural evil, destroy my home in an earthquake. So ideas have consequences and decisions have consequences. And we live in a planet where it's important that human beings remember that my decisions have consequences because they don't just have consequences here and now, they have consequences for all of eternity. So one reason God would allow evil to persist is so that we would always know that our ideas and our decisions have real consequences. Next, God allows evil to demonstrate the urgency of salvation. The Bible tells us that God is constantly drawing people to himself with kindness. In that context, he also allows human sin and human tragedy, knowing that they create a sense of urgency for salvation. When I hear that someone was murdered just a few blocks from my house, it creates a sense of urgency to be right with God. I know that I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. And the fact that God allows that to happen creates a sense of urgency to find him. And that is his very purpose in this planet, is that people would come to know him. It's why he created people in the first place, to be in relationship with him. I'm in college ministry, and there was a student I used to share my faith with on a weekly basis. And that student would always tell me, I know that you're right. I believe God is real. I believe Jesus is God in human flesh. I believe he's the only way of salvation. But I want to have my fun right now. I hope at some point in my life to get right with God. But for now, I'm choosing to have my fun. That young man was killed in a car crash not much after he told me that. Very sad story, true story, and it showed the reality that we're not guaranteed tomorrow. And God allows evil to persist on this planet to create a sense of urgency for salvation. God allows evil also to get our attention. C.S. Lewis put it very well, saying, Pain insists on being attended to. 
God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. See, God gets our attention through pain. And it's often, you'll read, at times of death, divorce, disease, displacement, those four Ds that we read about, that people find God. They feel pain, and God gets their attention. He extends hope in the context of their pain, hope in the midst of their pain. Another reason God allows evil is because he is patiently waiting for people, both the perpetrators and the victims of evil, to find him. He waits to intervene because he is patient, not wanting any to perish. He wants everyone to be able to have an opportunity to come to salvation. You could read more about that right in his word. Go to 2 Peter 3, 9, 1 Timothy 2, 4. He is patient, and he will tolerate evil as long as possible so that the most possible people will have an opportunity to find him. I love God's compassionate and gracious heart, and I'm glad that he demonstrates patience towards me and towards others, tolerating evil for a time so that many more would find him. Well, Romans 8.28 puts it this way. It says that God will turn everything around for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So in the midst of evil, believers can have true hope. I heard a wonderful analogy once. It was the tapestry analogy, and it goes something like this. When we look at a tapestry from behind, we see nothing but tangled knots and frays and strings going every which way, and it looks horrible and it looks messy. That's kind of how the world looks right now. But when you look at the tapestry from the other side, you see a beautiful work of art, and you realize there was a reason behind what looked to be chaotic on the other side. Well, from eternity, we'll be able to see what God allowed on this planet to accomplish much greater purposes. We'll be able to see the purpose in all of our pain and suffering here and how God brought good out of it in the long run. From that vantage point, I know that we will all believe that he did the right thing in allowing what he allowed and stepping in and preventing what he stepped in and prevented. So there are good answers to this. Now, as we consider the theoretical answers, I have to also mention that there are people that are hurting, that are listening right now, that are thinking, that's all so theoretical. I'm in pain. Well, the Bible says that we're to mourn with those that mourn, that we should sympathize and empathize with them, that we should encourage them, love them, reach out to them, and be there for them. If you're hurting, there really is hope, and it's in Jesus Christ alone. Press into him. Grow close to him. Let him encourage you. Let him be your joy. Let him be your peace. He is the answer to the pain that you're feeling right now. And Jesus always is the answer for whatever question we're asking. So as I talk about human free will and sin and how that lies at the foundation and the cause and the root of evil, I have to end with the gospel. See, God loves each and every one of us with an infinite, everlasting love. The Bible says that his love for you outnumbers the sand of the seas. His thoughts about you outnumber the sand of the seas. He loves you. He really does. He loves you so much. He created you in his image. He sent his son to die for you on the cross. He loves you. Unfortunately, the Bible says every single one of us is sinful and separated from God because of our sin. In our own nature, we deserve to be separated from him for our all of eternity in what the Bible calls hell. Well, 
If it ended there, that would be horrible, horrible news. Thankfully, it does not end there. The Bible says that God became a human being, God in human flesh, Jesus Christ, and he lived a perfect life so that anyone who puts their trust in him could be saved. He died for my sins and yours so that we could be forgiven. The Bible says that if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you'll be adopted into his family, you'll be forgiven, you'll be saved. And every one of us can make that decision. And we can, we can confess that with our mouths, as scripture says in Romans 10.9, beginning that relationship with him. If you've never made that decision to put your faith and trust in Christ, I would encourage you to do that right now. To say, to confess that with your mouth, to say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins. I believe that you rose again to give me new life. I ask you to come into my life to be my Savior and Lord and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Just this week, I shared the gospel with a young man on the UNM campus, and he made that decision to put his trust in Jesus Christ. I hope you'll follow his example. There's no better decision you could ever make. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com to get this show and all of our past shows, to leave us any comments you might have about the show, to check out a list of local churches that you could visit, and so much more. Please go to GodSolutionShow.com. And definitely, please keep listening to the show. Partner with us. You could donate online at GodSolutionShow.com to help keep the show on the air and help keep expanding the ministry of the God Solution Show. I'm so thankful that you're listening every week, and I Pray that you'll keep listening and telling your friends about it. Well, like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I believe that with all my heart. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at GodSolutionShow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of the God Solution.